Well, this morning, church, as we said, we continue going verse by verse in this book of Philippians. And last week, if you were here, we covered verses four through eight. And there, what we saw the apostle do is list all the things that he could have put confidence in. And it applied to us, because he listed all these things that had to do with who he was and what he did that he could have relied on. And we saw him compare all that to Jesus. And what we saw there last week was how the Bible tells us very clearly that in comparison to Jesus, to Jesus' gospel and love and a relationship with him and truly knowing the sovereign Lord of the universe, compared to all of that, all of our seemingly impressive things about us can't compare. And not only that, we saw that last week, although God does give us good blessings and gifts in the world, and they do matter, again, in comparison to Jesus, they too almost seem like nothing. And we said last week, it's not because they're not important, but because knowing Jesus and what he offers us truly is that great. And finally, concerning last week, ultimately we saw that the reason that all of this of comparing who we are to Jesus Christ is true is because all this about Jesus and the gospel and and God and his love is real. It's reality right now for, for you and me and everyone on this planet. And we stressed that last week And I want to briefly reiterate it this week because this means that what we talked about last week and what we're going to be continuing talking about this week isn't just some religious thought. Instead, it's reality. In reality, brothers and sisters, all you and I have or can do or achievements or earthly gifts can't compare to the salvation and the peace and the hope and the infinite joy that's available in Jesus Christ now and forever. In other words, in reality, this isn't just an idea, in reality, Jesus is better. So that was last week. That leads us now to this week. So as I said last week, verses seven and eight have a lot in them, and so now this week we'll continue picking up there and we'll go through verse 11 as you read, as we saw read. And what we'll see here this morning is Paul go in a little more detail concerning what he started talking about in verses seven and eight, about the surpassing worth or value of Jesus Christ. And to break these verses down, we'll break all that's said here into two main topics or sections, two main sections. So again, here Paul's essentially just expounding on this idea that Jesus is better, the surpassing worth of Jesus. And in doing so, we're gonna see him talk about first, how Jesus defines our past, present, and future. And then second, how Jesus is truly the center in all of that. So in sum, two sections. First, Jesus in reference to our past, present, and future. And then second, how Jesus is the center in all of that. But now with that said, let's begin our first point, and here we'll see how Jesus defines our past, our present, and our futures. And for this, we're just gonna go through each of those aspects, past, present, and future, and we'll apply it to ourselves as we go. So let's begin with Jesus in reference to our past. And for this, we're just gonna start by reading verse seven again. And as we do this, notice the past tense verbs in verse seven. So look down to your Bible's church, it's Philippians three, verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
And so, as you can see, the past tense verbs are here are had and counted. And we didn't talk about this last week, but this is why Paul almost repeats himself in verses 7 and 8 about how Jesus is better. Because verse 7 is about the past, I counted things as lost for the sake of Christ. Well, verse 8, if you look down, is going to be in the present. I count everything as lost because of the worth of knowing Christ. And this is important because this means, in a sense, if you think of it this way, verse 7 is Paul's conversion to Christ as he explains it. And what does he say happened as a conversion? Well, basically what we saw last week. When he came to Christ, he didn't just want to get out of hell. He didn't just want to go to heaven, as important as those things might be. Instead, he says that when he came to Christ, he compared all he was and all he had to Jesus, and he counted them as loss because he saw that Jesus is better. And and this is why, as you can see in verse 8, Paul's about to say, I have suffered the loss, past tense, of all things. In saying this, he's not saying that he literally lost everything or he had nothing left, and we know that because he still was, for example, circumcised on the eighth day. He still was an Israelite. He still was of the tribe of Benjamin, some of the things that he listed in verses four and five. And so what does the suffered the loss of all things mean? It means that when he came to Christ, he willingly lost putting any confidence in any of those things. He gladly said, now that I've found Jesus, none of those things are what I rely on. They're not my hope. It's really no longer about who I am or what I've done. Instead, it is about Jesus. And so that's what's said about Jesus in reference to our past here. And this applies to us because this, brothers and sisters, if we do trust in Christ here this morning, is how our faith began too. And we need to know that this is how it began because so often we subtly miss this. Because this means that when someone truly becomes a Christian, it's not about morality. Meaning, coming to Jesus, coming to know Jesus, is not at all about you or I finally trying to turn your life around and live a better life. That is not Christianity at all. Nor is coming to Christ just about believing in God's or Jesus' existence. Nor is coming to Christ just about raising a hand or signing a card. God can use all those things, yes, but what the Bible's saying to us here in verse seven, is that when you boil it down, you truly know Jesus, if at some point, genuinely in your heart, you started putting your confidence in him, and you counted him as better. Now to be clear, you very well may not remember the exact moment in the past when that happened. That matters less. And I do think that we as evangelicals have probably put way too much stock in trying to know the exact moment. But all this does mean is that if you are a Christian in your past, this counted exchange happened. It means that you're sitting here and you can now genuinely say with Paul about your past, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So the question is, has it happened to you? 
Can you say that in your past, at some point, this change happened? If so, then praise God, you know Jesus. You're a Christian. But if not, then again, we said this last week, you may not know Christ. But as we also said last week, we will say again, you can come to him even this morning. This morning, if you're sitting there and you're realizing that's you, this morning, this month of August now can be the time that you look back on in your past tense in the future and you can say, in August 2021, I stopped relying on who I am or what I've done or my achievements and I've relied on Jesus and I counted Jesus as better. So that's Jesus in reference to our past. But now that leads us to Jesus in reference to our present. And for this, we're going to read verse 8 and then verse 10. But to start, we'll just read verse 8. So we're continuing in Philippians 3. Look down at your Bible, Philippians 3, 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So again, notice how Paul intentionally uses the present tense count in verse 8. This is interesting for us because so often when we think about comparing all we are and all we've done to Jesus, we often mainly think about our past, our conversion, the time we came to Christ, all that we just talked about. But I want us all to see here, church, that actually the emphasis of our passage this morning is on the present. It's on us Christians being people who presently, continually count Jesus as better. And this makes sense because we think about it, this is the essence of faith. Because in the Bible, faith doesn't mean, again, just believing in the existence of God or Jesus. Instead, the word really means something more like trust or reliance. And so the question is, for any Christian, is, well, why do you trust in Jesus? (laughs) Why do you rely on Jesus and not in who you are or the things you can do? And the answer is because we as Christians are people who continually count Jesus as better. And if you think about it, that really is faith. Because faith is knowing Jesus and trusting in Jesus and knowing that Jesus is better at saving you. (laughs) It's knowing that Jesus is better at bringing you joy. It's knowing Jesus is better and his gospel is better at bringing you that satisfaction we're all craving. And it's knowing that Jesus is better at controlling your life. And again, the point of verse 8 is that we Christians continually count, reckon, acknowledge Jesus like this. So do we do this? Ask yourself, do I trust in Jesus like this? Meaning, do I presently look at my life and everything available to me and all that's going on and still say, Jesus, I love you more. You are better. Because maybe, there's going to be a lot said this morning, but maybe the simplest takeaway for you this morning would be to do this more. Right? To consciously decide to do what Paul does here in Philippians 3.8 in the present tense. I count everything as lost compared to Jesus. And remember, when Paul's saying this, he's not just saying that Jesus is the Savior of my sins. That's obviously very true. But remember, Paul is also and primarily saying that Jesus is better than anything I can be 
or do or achieve or have. And so again, we got to think that way too. And so again, the application for us this morning is just to do this, to think like this, to take some time. Try to do it this week, every once in a while, maybe just every single morning to start to remind yourself of the present superior worth of Jesus Christ. That he is better right now than anything that you can do, anything you can have, anything you can be, or anything you can achieve in this world. Because again, that, brothers and sisters, is faith. So that's verse 8 in reference to Jesus in our present. Before we move on to the future, let's look at Jesus in reference to our present again in verse 10. We'll come back to verse 9, but let's read that now. 310. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. So there's three quick things here. First, Paul's desire is to presently know Christ more, right? Quote, that I may know him. We'll talk about this more in the second section this morning, but this means clearly that the Christian life isn't just about knowing Jesus in the past, it's about presently wanting to know Jesus better. Then second, not only does Paul want to know Jesus more, but he says he, quote, wants to know the power of Jesus' resurrection. And this means that we as Christians want to know and experience the power of the risen Christ. But... It's at a point like this where we need to be clear that we really understand what the Bible's saying because especially today we can hear this about power and think that the Bible's primarily talking about things maybe like miracles or really obvious displays of power. But honestly, that's not really what the original word meant. Instead, in Greek, in the original language, the word power is literally just the same word for ability. Have you ever heard that? It's just the same word for ability. It was really helpful to me in my faith learning this. To say I have the power to do something is the same exact thing as saying I have the ability to do something. That's all it means. So we translate it mainly as power because especially when we're talking about God, it makes sense to talk about the power of God, the ability of God. But I bring that up because this means that in basic then, experiencing Jesus' power is literally just talking about experiencing the, Jesus giving us the ability to live our Christian lives really well. And that's why it's the power, the ability of his resurrection because the point is Jesus is alive. <laughs> and he's made Christians alive, born again. And so now presently, our goal is to live as those alive Christians. And how do we do that? Not by our ability, but by his ability, by Jesus' power. So that's the first two things in verse 10. Presently as Christians, we want to know Jesus more. We want to know his ability in us, through us. But that finally leads us to the third thing in verse 10. And it's this that's a little jarring. So notice, Paul talks about knowing Jesus more. He, wants, he, knows about, he talks about knowing the power of the risen Christ. And we love talking about those things. But then in his next breath, he says and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And that can seem so out of place to us, especially if we're very triumphant and we think it's all about victorious living because Paul is talking about how he wants to know Jesus better and he's saying he wants to know the power of Jesus better, but now he also wants to share Jesus' sufferings? 
So what could that mean? Well, here's where the Bible, church, and the true gospel of Jesus is honest and helpful. Unlike so many false gospels out there, especially those that are popular on TV. Because essentially what Paul's teaching here and what the Bible teaches elsewhere is that when we become Christians and we live as Christians, we love Jesus so much and want to follow him that we willingly say, like Paul did here, Jesus, you suffered and died for me. Now I want to follow you wherever that leads. And if that means suffering, which it will for all of us in certain ways, I trust you in it, even unto death. That's what we see here. That was the heartbeat of Jesus. That was the heartbeat of all of his apostles, of Paul, of Peter, of John, and the others. And it's the heartbeat of the Christian. We're people who love Jesus and trust Jesus and therefore willingly follow him into suffering. All because we trust them and we're glad even in a sense to follow in the footsteps of our suffering Savior. But... Unfortunately, there are many false gospels out there that teach the exact opposite of this. And I want us to know this because the Bible is clear about following Christ into suffering, and yet there's a version of so-called Christianity that gets this completely wrong and which hurts many people in which, and also which the masses love because it appeals to our desire to be prosperous and to not suffer. And on this, I'm obviously talking about the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel, which you'll usually see on TV or in popular so-called Christian bestsellers, because they'll say, their argument is, Jesus suffered and died for us. And therefore, he'd never want us to suffer. Instead, if we have enough faith, they say, he'll lead us to be prosperous and healthy and healed. And to support this, they twist verses in the Bible, right, about Jesus offering things like abundant life in John 10, or language of God's blessing. Or I recently, even this week, heard a pastor teaching this on YouTube, twisting the idea of the promised land, saying that God, of course, wants to give you your own personal promised land of prosperity and no suffering. But I bring that up because let me tell you with love but with biblical clarity that none of that is even close to biblical. And in fact, that's an example of twisting the scriptures that Peter, who very much suffered for Jesus, warns about in 2 Peter 3. Because although it may sound appealing, it's just not the way that Jesus told us to live the Christian life. And more importantly, it doesn't glorify Jesus. It glorifies stuff and comfort. So instead, we Christians, though, follow the example of Paul here in Philippians 3.10. We say, not glibly, but truly, I will share Jesus' sufferings, even becoming like him in his death. Meaning, I willingly follow my suffering Savior and trust him in my sufferings, not because it's easier or anything, but because I rely on him because I love him above any worldly comforts and ultimately because I know that who he is and who he is for me and what he offers me is better. And that, brothers and sisters, glorifies Jesus. Which finally leads us to Christ in reference to our future. 
For this, we'll continue and just read verse 11. So look down at your Bible. Paul continues. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so you can see the future here as Paul's talking about the resurrection from the dead. And this then shows us something that we've been saying here in our series on and off for some weeks now. And that's that Paul is concerned not mainly with just going to heaven, although he does look forward to being with Christ once he dies right away. But the big future thing that he's looking forward to is the resurrection from the dead. And in fact, that probably is why it's listed last in our paragraph here. It's because when Paul considers, he's talking about how Jesus is better and how he's been better in the past. And as he considers the present and his Christian life and all of that entails, he can then look forward to the future and know that the end of all of this is the resurrection from the dead. It's God's people living on this renewed earth and resurrected bodies all with Jesus forever. And we know that this is really on Paul's mind concerning the future because it's going to come up again in chapter 3 in a couple weeks, but even in more detail. See it for yourself. Look down with me quickly at verses 20 and 21. You might know these verses. Paul in Philippians 3 is about to say this. He ends the, the, the chapter like this. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so that is our future. Yes, our citizenship is in heaven, meaning we are people who truly belong with Jesus and should live in his presence. But notice, what's going to happen is that we're awaiting for Jesus to come back. And then he'll transform our bodies to be like his glorious resurrected body as he subjects all things to himself. And so what's Jesus in reference to our future? Well, yes, we will go to heaven when we die since we're citizens there. But even bigger, what we're ultimately looking forward to is Jesus' return and heaven coming here and the resurrection of the body and the renewal of all things. (laughs) Meaning when Jesus comes back and he raises us and he transforms us and this world forever. And as a side note, just quickly, in case you think verse 10, back to verse 10, implies any uncertainty, when Paul says that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, it's, it's not there. It's not because he's unsure of it. In English, by any means, might carry the connotation of uncertainty, like I hope to win by any means. But here, all Paul is saying, especially in the original language, is literally by whatever means it takes. Meaning whatever God uses, whatever means he uses to bring us to the point of the resurrection of the dead, that is our final hope. And that's what we look forward to. So I know that's a lot, but that's how Jesus defines our past, present, and future. Now that leads us to our second section, which will be quicker. And here we'll see how Jesus is truly the center of it all. And by this, as you'll see, what I mean is it's not just that in this text, Jesus has something to do with our past, present, and future, but also it's that all of it is really defined by, centered on, fueled by, focused on him. 
And you'll see this as we go through the text. And for this, we're just going to go through the text again, verse by verse, and see things there. But we'll start in verses 7 and 8 again. So look down at your Bibles. We're going to read verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so here we see how Jesus is central in our devotion or our religion, if you prefer that word. And we see that because when we break these verses down, there's really two things that Paul there is lifting high. Yes, he's talking about counting Christ as loss, but above all, what he cares about now that that's happened is two things. First, you can see in the middle of verse 8, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then second, at the end of verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ. And so what he cares about now is knowing more of Jesus and gaining more of Jesus. And that's how he defines his devotion or his religion or his practical relationship with God, if you will. It's knowing Jesus more. It's gaining more of Jesus. And it's helpful for us to see this because especially after talking so much about all of this last week and now continuing to talk about it this week, it's helpful for us to see that what we're talking about, brothers and sisters, is not just ideas. It's not just that we're comparing two ideas. The idea of Jesus and the gospel and the idea of who I am and what I've done. That is true in a sense, but mainly the center of our Christian lives, the center of our devotion is a person. Not just an idea, a real, alive person, the Son of God, whom we can know more, whom we can have a stronger, gain a stronger relationship with. And to be clear, when we say this, we're not only talking about Bible reading and prayer and coming to church. We are talking about those things, of course, because it is through the Bible and the Bible alone that we can hear from the person of Jesus Christ. And it's through prayer and prayer alone that we talk to the person of Jesus Christ and we gather here on Sundays to worship together the person of Jesus Christ. But when we say that the center of our lives and our devotion is a person and knowing and gaining more of him, this applies to all of life. It really applies to knowing and gaining more of Jesus, for example, when you're tired and you turn to him and you rely on Jesus in that moment for strength. It applies to knowing and gaining more of Jesus in the midst of temptation when you turn to him and you seek him for help. It applies to gaining and, more of Je- and knowing more of Jesus when you enjoy anything in this world. Because every gift and enjoyable thing in this world can be traced back to the giver and you can know and gain more of Jesus through that gift. In other words, this applies to gaining and knowing more of Jesus at all times. Wherever you are, at your work, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your finances, in your entertainment, in everything, we can truly be people who see more of Jesus in all of life. And through all of life, we can have a stronger relationship with him. We can know more of him. So that's the centrality of Jesus in verses 7 and 8. But now we'll read where Paul goes on from here in verse 9. And here, Paul's going to talk about the centrality of Jesus in the gospel. 
and the good news of Christianity. So let's do that now and see where Jesus is central here. Let's read verse 9. He continues, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So when we say that this is the centrality of Jesus in the gospel, the good news of Christianity, we really mean it because this actually is one of the best explanations in the Bible of what the gospel offers us. And it's such an important verse that we're actually going to spend all of next Sunday just on this one verse. And I want us to do that because I really want each of us, each one of us, and us as a whole church to really understand what's here and to believe what's here and to love what's said in verse 9 here. But for the sake of our time this morning, as a briefer overview, what we need to see here is that verse 9 is the gospel of how we're right with God. Because that's really what righteousness really did mean back then. Righteousness can seem like such a big word and such a big idea, but in brief, the righteous person in the Old Testament was somebody who in their mind was declared righteous or okay with the lawful God of the universe, with the God of Israel. The person who was right with God like that was called righteous. And the thing, if you will, that he or she possessed would be called righteousness. And so that said, the question of the gospel has always been, and we'll cover this more next week, is but how can this happen? How can we sinners truly have righteousness, this right standing in the courtroom of the perfect, all-seeing God? And if you look down in verse 9, Paul gives us two ways that people have tried this. First is the, quote, righteousness of my own, which comes from the law. Meaning, Meaning having that righteousness with God by your own obeying of God. But notice, Paul says that's not how he's accepted by God. That doesn't work. And why? Because once you sin once, you no longer have that righteousness in the eyes of the perfect God on your own. You can't. So what's the other option? And the only one that really works. Look again at verse nine. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And this is the gospel. Again, we'll go over this in more detail next week, but the gospel is that there's a righteousness Something that you can have where you are considered right with the God of the universe. There's a righteousness through faith in Christ. And as you can see, that's emphasized at the end of verse 9. A righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we'll cover that in even more detail next week. But in brief, the point for us here this morning is that this right standing with God happens not by our own doings, Not by us being moral, not by us repenting enough or feeling sorry enough, not by us doing good good enough actions, not by us being involved in church. Instead, it only happens because of Jesus. (laughs) Because by faith in Jesus, we can be pronounced right with the living God. That's the centrality of Jesus in the gospel. The essence of the gospel is don't rely on yourself at all to be right with God. Rely on Jesus. And to be clear, this also means, since we're talking about the center, that the center of the gospel isn't our faith. 
Yes, the Bible is clear, even here. Faith in Christ Jesus is the means of which this right standing comes to us. But let's not mistake the focus here. Because I so often think we can, even in our evangelism. The emphasis is not faith. The emphasis is Christ. Or think of it this way. To use an illustration, the good news of Jesus Christ is like an overflowing fountain available for thirsty, confused, anxious sinners like us. And it's flowing and it's flowing for all who come and drink. And so on the one hand, of course we should say to people, you must go drink. You should go drink. Because it's true, we must drink, we must believe. But in saying that, we can't mistake the emphasis of what's going on there. Because the emphasis isn't on the drinking, it's on the fountain. That's what we point people to. And that's our gospel. The gospel is centered on Jesus Christ and how he can make us right with God. Yes, we believe. And yes, our righteousness comes to us through faith. But it's faith in Christ Jesus. So that's verse 9, the centrality of the gospel, Jesus in the gospel. But now that finally leads us to verses 10 and 11 again. We'll go through these quickly, but we'll see Jesus central here. So let's read 10 and 11 again. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So again, we already covered the main ideas here in our first section, but we read them again because I want you to see how central Jesus is and all that. See it for yourself. So we saw from verse 10 that we experienced Jesus' resurrection ability and power. We're enabled to suffer and even die well. But notice how Paul emphasizes Jesus in all of it. Because notice, verse 10 reads like this, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. <laughs> in other words, the Bible's saying my knowing, my living, my suffering, and even my dying is connected to, it's centered on Jesus. It's him I want to know. It's his power I need. It's his suffering in a way I'm even suffering. And when I die... I die like him. And the point for us then is that this means that all of our living as Christians, when we live as Christians, it's not that we're just trying to live as good, moral, loving Christians. Instead, in all of our living, as you can see there, we're people focused on and even participating in the life of Jesus. Or to use the examples Paul uses, right? It means that if we're able to do something, able, to do something for Christ, have the power to do it, we're able to do it because it's his power. And similarly, it means that if we're going through suffering, we're not just suffering. Instead, in a way, we're participating in Christ's sufferings. And finally, even when we die, Christians don't just die. But as verse 10 says, quote, we become like him in his death. We follow Jesus' footsteps even there. But here's a beautiful part on all that. And this is why I think verse 11 ends our paragraph. So we live here by Jesus' power. We suffer like him. We even die like him. But as verse 11 shows us, that's not the end. The final chapter for all of us who follow in Jesus' footsteps, who trust in him, will also be that just like him, we finally and forever will be resurrected from the dead. So that's our text. First, we saw how Jesus relates to our past, present, and future. 
Second, we saw how Jesus is truly the center in it all. Whether we're talking about counting Jesus as better, or devotion and knowing Jesus and gaining Jesus, or the gospel which Jesus accomplished, or our Christian living and suffering, or even our future deaths and resurrections, you can see it's all focused on Jesus. But now as we close, let me just quickly share with you, church, one encouraging thing. One encouraging thing this means for us. And I do this because at this point in a message like this, we may know that all of that is true. But if we're honest, we also know that loving and following Jesus still can seem so grinding at times. We know that Jesus is better and yet life is tough. We get tired, we fall into temptation, we get frustrated, we nag at people, we complain, and honestly, we just often don't live in accordance with how we know we should live. And so with that in mind, there's of course many things that we could apply from this passage, but let me just encourage you, church, with one overarching thing from what we saw here this morning, and that's this. So after seeing how central Jesus is, and after seeing how Jesus defines our past, our present, and our future, If you're a Christian, let me just encourage you that this also means that your past, present, and future ultimately isn't defined by you. By what you've done, by what you're going through, or even by what you'll do in the future. It really isn't. And I point that out because that's a big takeaway for us here because Paul is so emphatic about how his past, present, and future isn't about him, but it's about Jesus. And so ours is too, and we need to know this. Because so often we get caught up in thinking that, sure, our conversion was about Jesus and all grace and faith, but now we can start to think, it's up to me, at least a little bit. Almost as if Jesus saves us and then he hands the baton off to us and says, now go and live accordingly and do your best. But hear this encouragement from God's word, church, that's absolutely not true. Not only do we never do anything on our own, right? That's what verse 10 told us. But even bigger than that, ultimately our past and our present and our future ultimately isn't mainly about us at all. In other words, our salvation and forever joy is in no way based on how good you'll do for Jesus in the past or how good you'll do for Jesus now or how much good you'll do for Jesus in the future. And so this means that for those of us who genuinely love and trust in Jesus, we can all take a deep and encouraging breath. Because it means we can stop discouragingly looking so much at ourselves. Instead, concerning our past and what we've done, and concerning the present and whatever we're going through, and concerning the future and whatever is to come, we can, with encouragement, look mainly to our good and sovereign Savior. Because he's the center of all of that, not us. Our lives are really about him. He's done what's needed to be done for us and in us in our past. He's working in us and for us in the present. He's sovereign over what's to come. And one day, he will raise us from the dead in the future. Amen? Amen, Amen, church. Let's pray, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.